Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. We're celebrating so many anniversaries this year. The first is, I'm happy to tell you, we've reached 150 episodes of Grading the Nutmeg and over 120,000 downloads. Thank you, listeners. Connecticut Explored Magazine is celebrating its 20th anniversary with 20 for 20, Innovation in Connecticut History, a series of articles, podcasts, and public programs that highlight 20 game changers in the field of Connecticut history. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we're taking a look at the development of one of our game changers. The Connecticut Historical Society was recognized for three recent projects. A brief history of Connecticut's LGBTQ community developed with staff and students of Central Connecticut State University is a traveling exhibition and digital timeline. The work must be done, women of color and the right to vote uncovered exciting new research about women of color and their participation in Connecticut politics. Both were subjects of previous episodes of Grading the Nutmeg. So in this episode, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society talks to two of her colleagues about the third project, an exhibition entitled Common Struggle, Individual Experience an exhibition about mental health. Ben Gamble is CHS's director of exhibitions and Karen Lyme Miller is their research historian. So Ben, I'm going to start with you. You just published an article in the summer 2022 edition of Connecticut Explored, which talks about the exhibition and its content. So I thought I'd ask you some questions about the creation of the exhibition and Why don't you start by telling me, um, when did you first get the idea to do an exhibition about mental health? Uh, The idea of mental health as a topic initially, I think, came from our leadership. It wasn't my idea. Um, There were conversations between the CHS and the Institute of Living several years ago because the 200th anniversary of the founding of IOL was coming up and is being celebrated now in 2022. So the IOL... They have a museum that tells their history, and they're working on that and revamping that even now as we speak. So there were conversations with them, and that's how the idea sort of just came to the surface. Of course, mental health has been an important and common topic in the media for for quite a few years. We started this, I mean, we started the exhibit and started working on the exhibit in 2018. Um, So you know, mental health has been an important topic for a while, um, not just because of the pandemic. We sometimes kind of forget that um, because it's even, it feels like an even more apt topic right now. We often come up with ideas for exhibitions in different ways, sometimes based on a collection that we have or a particular anniversary coming up or a story that's really compelling. This idea was a little different because it really was not based on anything in our collection. We didn't frankly really know what we had connected to mental health other than some documents related to the Institute of Living. It really was, hey, here's an important topic. It has relevance. What can we do with it? And we just started from there. You said that the CHS itself did not have a lot of documentation or artifacts related to mental health. 
why was that? Was that due to specific collecting policies or was it due to a dearth of mental health related documentation in archives in general? Or was it a little bit of both? A lot of documents related or objects, other archival material related to mental health are in archives in the state government or um, hospitals. And those are not always accessible to people. And there are, I mean, there are controversies right now about when those should be made available to people, how long to wait before making those uh, records public. So I think part of it is we don't, we just didn't have a lot of those. But again, we also didn't quite know. I mean, part of the really fascinating aspect of this exhibit was discovering stories related to people's mental health while doing research. And those aren't, you know, when you're looking through our catalog, you don't look up necessarily the keyword mental health and everything just pops up. It could be a person's personal collection that you start going through. And then all of a sudden you discover this whole side of this person of their life that maybe isn't in the catalog record or is only mentioned very briefly. So Karen, you did a lot of the research, as our research historian at the CHS, you did a lot of the research um, for this exhibition. Can you, can you think of an example of finding something in the archives that, you know, it didn't, it didn't have a tag on it that said mental health here, find information, but in looking at it, you discovered that it did speak to this topic. So the CHS is fortunate to hold like official records, institutional records, for example, for the Hartford Retreat, which is now the Institute of Living. We have a collection that's related to Connecticut Valley Hospital, but these are institutional materials like um, newsletters, magazines, accounting books. These don't really tell the very personal, intimate details about individuals' experiences with uh, mental health. And we had to start using new search words, because if you look up things like mental illness, probably not going to come up with much mental health. So we had to expand and use words that maybe are uncomfortable and inappropriate for today. Um, words like insane, you know, hysterical, even like uh, absent-minded or melancholy, I think was a big one. So in doing so, we started looking into other collections and realizing these are letters that are tucked within larger collections. We found letters from a man who was a patient in a Hartford retreat. He was so angry about his um, institutionalization at the Hartford retreat because he felt like he was losing his independence. And these are really very moving letters to his son. He wrote letter after letter. Um, we find out later on that he eventually is released and lives with his son through the remainder of his life. One letter I think that really stands out to us is the situation of Patrick Bentham in Newtown, Connecticut. We found a letter about Patrick uh, within a doctor's collection. And this letter talks about Patrick Bentham as a Black man who is impoverished. Uh, it's really quite, it's a disturbing letter about the treatment of someone who is impoverished, a person of color. They talked about how he had been chained. 
that they now put him to work in a field. So there are stereotypes that we encounter. There are, you know, we get a fuller story when we look into the context of who the doctor was, what happens to Patrick Bentham. And he doesn't, Patrick Bentham, we know, lives to an old age, I think of in his 70s or 80s. He remains with this doctor's family, Dr. Campbell in Newtown. And I think that was one of those really touching and shocking moments when you really think about what it means to have mental health issues and be a person of color and to be impoverished and dependent. And yet, you know, he was supposed to be in the care of someone who would safeguard his well-being. And that was not the case. So this was a story of exploitation and hardship. How was putting together this particular exhibition different from others that you have worked on? And I'll start with Ben first. What was, was there anything different about it? Yeah, it was it was different in a few ways. The evolution of care, the change in care and how we view it and how it's changed over time is something we discussed early on. And so we talked to a lot of different people, and I'll talk about that in a second, about about this topic. And many people were involved in in putting this together. So there was, I mean, some people could make a very strong argument that history of mental health treatment is a linear evolutionary story that things have just gotten better and better over time. Um, and that argument was made by some people. And then, and of course, history is never quite as simple as we might want it to be. So there are other opinions about, you know, where we are with mental health treatment. So all that to say is, as we developed this exhibit, we sort of got away from the idea of trying to tell this whole the history of mental health treatment, you know, from 1822 to 2022. Part of that was not necessarily having all of those records to tell that story in our collection, but also a big part of it was wanting to get at the personal experiences of people. And Karen talked about that, finding these personal stories. So that was a difference in, from some of our exhibits. Many of our exhibits, we often do have community members, focus groups. We've held focus groups to help develop exhibitions. So this is not a new thing for us, although it was probably more intense than a project I've worked on before. Intense meaning we did more, we did more community meetings and gathering feedback from people. So we had several focus groups moderated by a professional where we presented our ideas for the exhibit. We asked people, what do you want to see in an exhibit about mental health? What do you think of our proposed themes that we might explore? So we got a lot of feedback from people. And then we also decided to, we, you know, we always try to connect our exhibitions to today in some way. Like why is, why does this history matter? How is it relevant to today? And of course we tried to do that with this exhibit. And in some ways that was easier. Uh, than other history topics, but we made a real effort of reaching out to people and interviewing people. So we interviewed 21 people, asking them from all over Connecticut, different different ages, backgrounds, different uh, geographic areas, asking them about their personal experiences with mental health. That and that was emotionally exhausting for me personally. I was it was very rewarding, but also exhausting and. Very rewarding in the sense of 
me feeling honored to that people would sit down and share such personal and sometimes really painful stories. Um, it felt like a big responsibility to do that. So that was that's something very different from previous exhibitions that I've worked on. I think that that is one of the features that stands out the most about the exhibition is the to have the stories of people who are alive and well and living um, in 2022, right next to the stories of people from the 18th century or the 19th century. Were there any challenges in making those juxtapositions or putting those stories next to each other? Is there a difference in the way you approach telling the story of someone who's able to tell you their story face-to-face versus someone whose story you have to reconstruct using documents or artifacts? Well, for me, it, you know, Karen can probably weigh in on this too, but for me, it's, it feels very different. There's a, when I interviewed people, I had questions, but they're telling their story. They're deciding what to share or not share. That's very different from reading through some documents of a person from the past who it's another responsibility of taking their story and sharing it and telling it, trying to tell accurate history, but also having to read between the lines a little bit and make some assumptions. One of the documents that really affected me, I guess, in an emotional way was this letter um, we found by a woman named Samantha Horn, who wrote about, she was writing to a friend about her husband who had died by suicide and her attempts to help him knowing that he was suicidal. This was in the 1800s and really doing what she could without any help and ultimately failing in, in helping him. And it's a, it's a really sad story. And I guess the reason why it affected me was I thought she, she wrote this, she did not write this letter for me to read in 2022 and put in an exhibition. And, you know, I frankly feel a little conflicted about that, putting that out there. This is a private, extremely private document that I guess philosophy applies to a lot of what we do as a historical society in holding people's records in perpetuity. So, you know, it's like, what do, so what do we do with that letter? We present it, we, we put it on display, um, we write a short label you know, talking about Samantha Horn as an example of someone who's dealt with uh, this situation, was a caregiver who just didn't have the help. I love next to that letter, we have a quote from a woman that we interviewed who talked, she said, as a, she talked about her son and who had a mental health condition, who has a mental health condition. And, and the quote is, she said, as a parent, you're fighting, fighting for care. That was her main theme as I interviewed her. It was just how difficult it is and difficult it is to get support and um, to get people to help and understand your situation. So it to me, those 2022 mother and a late, 18, late 1800s wife talking about lack of support, I think is pretty powerful. And one message that I think the ex- exhibition tells is that these are struggles people have experienced throughout history. And for me, connecting with someone from the past is sort of why I like to study history. So we had the honor of working with various community groups, as Ben mentioned. We talked, for example, with uh, Khmer health advocates 
in West Hartford. They have been serving their communities, not only in Connecticut, but also, uh, you know, in the Northeast. And during the pandemic, they served, you know, North American clients. And these are raw, painful stories. And we are so appreciative of organizations and individuals coming forward and willingly sharing and connecting and, uh, you know, putting their experiences to words in an exhibition. In those cases, we talk to people for hours and we come to learn that there is so much more to the story. So in talking to Khmer health advocates, we have to understand Cambodia's history, Cambodia's relations with the United States. And, you know, when we create a text label for the exhibit, it's a hundred words. So when we look at it, we always have to remember there is there are layers of complexity, much larger histories. And I think we need to approach that, also give that same approach and um, consideration to historical documents that reflect people's lives. For example, like Faith uh, Trumbull Huntington's letters and documents written about her. She's well known for suffering melancholy. She died by suicide and scholars have written about her in a variety of ways, calling her, uh, you know, one person thought she was a bad mother. Um, another person thought she, uh, you know, was unstable, et cetera. And you just have to remember, there is so much more to the story. Faith Huntington cannot speak for herself. We learn a lot about her through her family members and we learn what it's like for a community and a network to be working together to support someone. And it's not as simple as simply putting a label on someone based on a few letters or a journal entries. You know, there are, even though we're able to speak to contemporary uh, interviewees, what we learn is only a small part of a much larger, complicated narrative. And I think we have to be open-minded and realize we also have to give that same sort of regard and respect to historical narratives. We'll be right back. Connecticut Explored is celebrating its 20th anniversary with 20 for 20, Innovation in Connecticut History, a series of articles, podcasts, and public programs that highlight 20 game changers in the field of Connecticut history. The insights and ideas we gather through this five-minute survey will help individuals and organizations who are committed to keeping Connecticut history vibrant and relevant. Thank you for your time. Visit www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash chs915. You like podcasts about Connecticut history? Well, here's another one for you to check out. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. Every Thursday, a new 20-minute story. And all you have to do is search for Amazing Tales with Mike Allen, and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. The average visitor in an exhibition spends about how much time? I know that there are studies done. I don't know. It's maybe 12 minutes or 20 minutes. If 20 minutes is a really, would be really nice, but... That's not usual. <laughs> I think, again, people who, who who like museums, who visit museums or who maybe don't like museums and only visit them like under protest, um, they walk through these exhibitions 
they don't always realize how much effort goes into this. And for every, right, that panel that only has about a hundred words on it, how many words don't go on and how much of the story doesn't go on the panel because you are trying to tell a story that people can absorb in a limited amount of time. And I mean, the idea is to spark their interest and perhaps what, what do you want people to take away from this particular exhibition? There's only so much you can do in an exhibition. It's a limited uh, form of sharing information. So some people, you know, if you want to learn more about this particular person, maybe watch a documentary or read a book. There's other ways of learning certain things. I think what we want people to get out of this, our goals were kind of simple. Um, they're grand, but simple. Realizing that you're not alone if you're struggling with a mental health issue. You're not alone today and you're not alone throughout time. That's been a, I think that's a powerful message. Um, it's not a necessarily a new message. And the other message I think I would like people, or the other takeaway, I guess, is, is for people just to feel more comfortable talking about mental health today. And that that's not my idea. That's an idea that, again, that's not a new idea. I mean, you you look at um, mental health campaigns for decades have, and maybe even centuries have pushed this idea of, well, we just we need to bring things out into the light and not stigmatize our mental health experiences. The not alone piece is, I think, even more powerful. You know, seeing someone's experience hundred years ago and perhaps imagining yourself in that situation or imagining a loved one in that situation, I hope might help someone in their own situation of thinking, okay, this is not just me. This is, this is a experience many people have gone through. There's, you know, there's something that can be done about it. There are people out there who can help or can listen to me if I want to talk about it. You've said a couple of times that the idea is obvious, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need reinforcing. And to have it be reinforced in a place like a museum, right, where we're explicitly challenging people to think about the past and today at the same time and to compare is important. Um, this is a serious, it's a serious topic of inquiry. It's a serious, it's worth putting the time in. It's not whatever your personal mental health struggles might be, it's not trivial. It's not your personal problem. Mental health care has been a societal need and a societal issue for a long time. I also think, and I hope, I believe that we approached this with some humility as well. And the ex exhibition reflects that. So yes, museums are trusted institutions. Many might argue that our trusted institutions are losing their trust and so I think this exhibition reflects some humility on our part where we're not, there are many opinions related to mental health. Um, and that's, I mean, that came out in our focus groups. Those come out in the interviews. People say um, conflicting things about how they view mental health. We are not trying to tell our visitors, this is, this is how mental health should be understood this is how it should be treated. This, this, that was whatever was done in the past was wrong. You know, we are trying to let the story speak for themselves. And 
let people think about the topic and hopefully wrestle with it personally and go off and talk with other people, do their do research or whatever to come to their own conclusions about sort of what what do I do now or what are this what are the steps to take? Like we don't really say those things in the exhibition, which was deliberate. I mean it was part of part of the development of the exhibit. Yeah, you know, I would follow up on what Ben said and add to that. Like, absolutely, we I we constantly said, consistently said that we are not the experts. We do not diagnose. Uh, we are learning along the way too, and I hope we achieved a goal of being a platform or venue for others to speak. We have a diverse range of voices in the exhibition. For example, we have uh, young people like Trinity Kennedy and Julia Tannenbaum. We invited the Triangle Community Center Norwalk to talk about uh, their experiences and challenges uh, within the LGBTQ plus community. And I think in doing so, we share the experiences and voices and concerns of people who have you know, direct experiences with finding care, of finding support, of, uh, or of, of creating support, like a Triangle Community Center, you know, um, organizing peer support groups, et cetera. Sorry, that wasn't a very elegant way of just following up, but we were never the experts. We always wanted to give voice and space, and we were just so privileged and honored to be able to present these stories. I think for me, one of the most powerful parts of the exhibition are the whiteboards that are sprinkled throughout where there are prompting questions on there and you give people the opportunity to write comments, um, questions like, um, like how, how do you talk about mental health? Um, what yes. more needs to be done? What, how have you struggled with mental health? Yes. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> What for you, can you think of any particular comments that were made that affected you or sort of made you think about it? Because I know for me, the overall feeling is whenever I go in the exhibition and I see these questions that have accumulated, I feel having had nothing to do with creating the exhibit, I feel proud to be part of an institution that is has this exhibition that speaks to people because it's very clear. What's very clear from the comments is that people are having a reaction to this exhibition. It's speaking to them and it's prompting them even anonymously to leave a little bit of themselves there. And you do document those comments, don't you? Yeah, so they're, they are whiteboards. So we do have to periodically clean off the comments um, so there's room for more, which is a great thing. Um, you know, I was, I'm never quite sure if people are going to respond when we do something like this. So it's been really rewarding to see the response. So we photograph comments and we archive them. There are a lot of encouraging comments people leave both on the whiteboards and in the comment book, the traditional comment book, um, people saying, you know, um, I care, people are out there who care about you. You're not alone. One particular series of responses that impacted me. Um, in one of the galleries, we ask, in what ways have you struggled with mental health? And there, I've seen a se several comments about from, I think, college students who talk about just how difficult it is for them to 
keeping up with everything they got to keep up with in the midst of the pandemic. There have been several comments like that. Sometimes they include specific mental health diagnoses or conditions that they're dealing with. But I think young people have it really have had it really tough the past few years. And so those have kind of hit me like, yeah, that that's hard. It's painful to see that. And it's a it's a interesting combination of feelings when I look at the whiteboard because like you say, people just leave a tiny little fraction of who they are. And you're kind of like, I'm so glad that they've shared something. I hope they're okay. <laughs> you know, you don't know their story. I think I've been noticing that people have responded on the whiteboards since opening day and there have never, you know, people have been writing their own stories, offering help, like hotline numbers, encouragement, as Ben mentioned, and responding to each other. And that has been really moving just the amount and the uh, constant, the constant responses, I guess. And, and we have multiple ways for visitors to participate. For example, on the whiteboards in the exhibition, we have a, a traditional comment book. We also have a video kiosk where people can share their stories as well. We are honored that people feel safe and feel like this is a that CHS is a place where you can tell your stories and share your experiences and be part of larger communities. To the whiteboard comments again, another very simple, but I find powerful um, way of commenting is people add, like someone might mention a struggle that they have, and then people add plus one, plus two. All one person is doing is adding a plus one, but it's kind of like, yeah, I'm dealing with that too. I, that's a really cool thing to see. You see that online. Like you can go online and find people who have similar experiences to you and you can do that. You can like the post, well, like the post that's, that's Facebook, I guess that's, I'm told that's for older folks. Um, but you can, you know, you can retweet something, but to see that happen in an actual physical space where all of those people who are making the comments or plus wanting the comments have been in that same physical space in that room, seeing that same exhibition. We have lots of places in the public sphere to talk about things anonymously and to share that support, but it's, it's all out there on the interwebs to have it in a physical space, I think is fantastic. And a reminder of, again, you know, how many people are, um, when you see those messages of support, these aren't just people, anonymous people from all over the globe. These are people who, you know, live right here in your community, who have been in the vicinity of this particular building and able to go visit. And I think that's, to me, like one of the, the best parts of that is seeing how, seeing that. Ben, you referenced the COVID pandemic. So you all are in the middle of putting together a major exhibition about mental health. So in the middle of this, we enter this historic pandemic. How did you try to incorporate that experience into the exhibition, even as you're putting the exhibition together? It was difficult. <laughs> it's been, I mean, it's been a very difficult few years for everybody. And, you know, Part of the pandemic, or the pandemic is part of the reason why we started it in 2018, but didn't open it until end of 2021. But in the middle of the pandemic, the CHS decided that, that we wanted to start documenting 
the pandemic for the future. So independent of the of our ex, our exhibit, the CHS was collecting people's photographs and asking people to submit um, artwork and stories and things through an online portal. So since we were going to interview people about mental health anyway, we we had these interviews lined up. It was just seemed kind of obvious that we would ask them about the the pandemic as well. Um, so we do have a video in the exhibit that does ask people share how the pandemic has affected their mental health. It's hard to do that kind of thing in the middle of an experience and look back and really understand how it's affected you. And so these videos are, I think, they're very powerful, some of the the people's comments, and I think most people can relate, but they're also during the pandemic, um, like a year and a half ago. So things have changed. Things have gotten worse for people's mental health in many ways. So we, yeah, we we wanted to make that part of the exhibit, but it's hard to really assess an impact, the impact in the middle of it. While we're all dealing with the mental health impacts of it. I mean, it's been the whole, the whole experience has been stressful for everyone. That's an understatement. Common struggle individual experience is on view through October 16, 2022, and is available on CHS's website as a virtual tour. See the show notes for links. This episode was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan.